Hello, and thank you for joining Fisher Phillips' later podcast series, focusing on all types of issues dealing with the future of work. In this podcast, we will tackle issues like workplace privacy, trade secrets, social media in the workplace, and generally anything having to do with the new normal workplace. My name is Dave Walton. I'm joined here by my partner, Brent Cosro. Brent and I are both partners at Fisher Phillips. We're both based in our Philadelphia office, but everything that we're gonna talk about deals with national topics and of course, a national scope. We're here to talk through recent developments and offer some practical perspectives to help demystify what can really be sometimes complex areas for employers to stay in front of. Our topic today centers on the recently signed executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. President Biden and his administration has issued a new executive order to encourage more competition. Uh, the uh, general idea is that lack of competition is driving down wages and increasing prices. So the average voter is getting a double whammy, so to speak. They're uh, making less money and they're paying more for products. So there's a lot of areas that this executive order of covers, obviously, because we're the labor and employment lawyers, I went right to the section that talked about uh, labor markets. And there was three new things of labor markets. One in particular, I think, has application to us. We'll be talking about extensively. But just as background, the executive order says roughly half of private sector businesses require at least some employees to enter non-compete agreements, affecting some 36 to 60 million workers, which is a lot. I mean, when I read that and I've been doing non-competes for over 25 years, that still seems like a big number. So the Biden administration is, one of the things that they're doing is they're instructing the FTC to encourages the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. That's the first thing. Second thing, the press release with the executive order says almost 30% of the jobs in the United States require a license up from 5% in the 1950s. Biden administration is encouraging the FTC to ban unnecessary occupational licensing restrictions that impede economic mobility. And then the, uh, the last thing is that the Biden administration is encouraging the FTC and the DOJ to strengthen antitrust guidance to prevent employers from collaborating to suppress wages or reduce uh, benefits. Obviously, the one that jumped out at me, and I think the one that jumped out at you, was the first one, encourages the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. What was your first reaction when you saw that? Well, it's always those little sentences that seem to be the most dangerous. Yes. I mean, it's only like fewer than 10 words, but look at that. I mean, yeah. all of a sudden, it seems like we're going to have federal law in the form of an executive order that just bans or limits one of the most powerful tools that employers have to restrict their, their employees and what they do after employment ends. So this is a potential game changer for many employers nationwide. I'll also tell you, I mean, we were reflecting a minute ago on, you know, 25 to 30 million employees are currently bound by a non-compete. It's really important for everyone to remember that doesn't even include the millions more employees who've signed NDAs which became red hot in the wake of the Me Too era, non-solicitation agreements, non-recruitment clauses for other employees. So there's really even a broader number, a much larger cohort of Americans in the workforce who have signed on to restrictive covenants that aren't even part of what we're talking about here. Absolutely, because as you know, a lot of times a non-solicitation agreement can be drafted so it 
looks like a non-solicitation agreement, but really acts in practice like a non-compete agreement. I just want to take a step back for a minute because a lot of employment lawyers don't know about the FTC because we don't have to deal with the FTC. I've had to learn about the FTC because I also do a privacy work. So just some background on the FTC I thought uh, might be helpful. Uh, FTC was founded in 1914 to enforce a antitrust law. It was expanded in 1938 to allow consumer protection, and that's mostly of what it does now. FTC currently oversees the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the CAN-SPAM Act, and uh, COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. The big authority in the FTC is called Section 5 authority, at least in the uh, privacy world. And that's the FTC's authority to regulate and to take action against unfair and or deceptive trade practices. Now, without getting into the weeds here, there's a different standard for unfair trade practices and a different standard for deceptive trade practices. Um, FTC also has broad investigatory powers under Section 6, and they have broad subpoena powers. They can issue an injunction, but if they want a civil fine, they have to sue directly in a federal court. Fines currently are around $43,000 per violation, and that's calculated per day per a violation. So, the big question to me when I first read this was, how's the FTC going to manage this? Is this going to be a new rule? Is this going to be part of Section 5? Because I'm not aware of the FTC even regulating employees prior to this. Have you ever heard of that? Not Certainly not in the area where we practice with restrictive covenants. Yeah. So this is something very new. And it really begs the question, is the FTC going to now start to get involved in this space the way, for example, it's you know, brethren and sister agencies like the EEOC and DOJ and OSHA regulate the, the American yeah. workplace. What we may see is the FTC jump in and start initiating investigations, litigation, the way that those other agencies do. That would have the advantage of being familiar to many employers. They, it, would, it would feel like something they've already had to deal with, but it may not go that way. The other questions are gonna be, you know, is there going to be a private right of action created by an executive order? And then if there isn't or is a private right of action, regardless of how that works, how is this going to be used in civil litigation? So, for example, we have clients every day that are both prosecuting and defending restrictive covenant work. Now are we going to see companies come in or are our clients going to ask us, hey, wait a minute, we've got to use the Biden executive order as an affirmative defense in this case. We should have the whole thing thrown out. Um, you know, Dave, you as a guru on, you know, sort of like the interplay between the federal and state courts. I mean, what do you think about how this is going to go with respect to removal? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting because I mean, we were talking about the uh, CFAA prior to this, too. And, you know, the, 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 the Computer Fraud Abuse Act was initially used as a mechanism to get a non-compete case in a federal court. Now you have the uh, a DTSA, which is which is the Defend Trade Secrets Act. So at, at least what I always try to do is turn a non-compete case into a trade secret case, so that gets you federal court jurisdiction. But it's going to be interesting here because, as you mentioned, there is no private right of action under Section 5 of the FTC. And I'm not sure whether the FTC can just on its own say, I, I'm going to initiate a private right of action, or whether that has to come through some in, enabling legislation from Congress to expand its powers. Uh, I don't know. There's FTC experts that are out there that probably know the answer, but I don't know the answer to that. Um, but in terms of 
you know, in, an issue that raises to me is a preemption. Okay, so state courts have authority to approve non-compete agreements. I mean, if you just take a non-compete agreement at its core, it's a violation of antitrust law. Okay, but there is a exception in the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 that says states can enforce reasonable non-competes or restrictive covenants. So that's where the test comes up with what, you know, the test for reasonableness that each state employs a version of. And that's basically a common law. I mean, there's some statutes on it, but it's basically common law. So is this going to preempt that law in terms of enforcement of a non-compete? Uh, and just like you said, do you raise it as an affirmative defense? And, and the other thing, too, is if there's a violation, if I'm exposing you to a non-compete grant that violates the FTC rule, is that a violation, merely exposing you to that? Or is, is that going to be something you have to raise in an affirmative defense? Can the FTC issue an investigation? just by me exposing you and asking you to sign a non-compete that violates its rule. So there's a lot of different issues here that I, you know, that I think are fascinating because this is the area that we practice, but um, it's really opening up the proverbial can of worms. I think that's right. And I, another issue that comes up when it comes to the scope of that little sentence is when you widen the aperture on it, go back to what we were talking about earlier with the other types of restrictive covenants that are out there and used every day. If they're not covered, well, that means that what President Biden's proposing through this executive order and enacting won't even touch that. Yeah. Now, why is that important? If you really look back at, the, at the, the span and the trajectory of restrictive covenant litigation in the 21st century so far, there have been several really important markers along the way that have affected that litigation. One piece of conventional wisdom says that the dot-com bursting and the Great Recession and the impact that those events had on the American labor market put so many people out of work that courts in the wake of those events were very hesitant to say, I'm going to force a guy who was fortunate enough to get a job to actually not work in that job because he or she signed a non-compete. And that hesitancy by, by the judiciary um, has something that's been discussed by a lot of practitioners. And there are people who don't agree with that and people who do. Yes. But if you think about that for a minute in the context of this executive order, what you're left with is if every other type of restrictive covenant, the NDAs, the non-solicits, the non-recruits, the no poaches, the no raids, if they're still intact, well, that means that a great deal of the everyday litigation that people in our world, Dave, see and our clients get involved in enforcement or in the defense side, that's still gonna go on completely unabated by this. So there, one way to look at this is to say, all right, so we're gonna shut down non-competes, that leaves still open everything else. Yes. It could go unaffected. Now conversely, there's some employers who might say, or employees who are, who are really gonna look for creative ways to leverage this executive order to say, well, a non-compete, that, you know, what, what's a non-compete at the end of the day? Yeah. And it could become a little bit of a definitional crisis yes. where the court's litigants say, well, wait a minute, I think that a non-solicit is a non-compete. Yeah. It restricts competition. So we may get down to a, a real fight in the courts over what does non-compete mean. Absolutely. And I, I think that's such a great point because a lot of times a non-solicitation is really a non-compete, but couched under a 
or placed under a header in an agreement called non-solicitation. And when, because when you look at the impact, especially with the use of the words a direct or indirect, and you try to enforce language direct or uh, indirect, like we had, you know, in, uh, I had a six week jury trial once based upon the definition of the word accept. Could you accept somebody, A-C-C-E-P-T, into your office, even if you didn't hire them? And we had a six-week jury trial just on that term, and that was a non-solicitation. Listeners are dying to know, yeah. was there an exception to accept? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. A good practitioner will be able to craft a, non, a non-solicitation that in the real world has an impact like a non-compete. And the other part about this too is the chilling effect. I mean, so if you sign something and you're not sure exactly what it means or how far it goes, that from an employer standpoint, that that has a chilling effect, which is gonna cast doubt in the mind of the employee, which is gonna affect his or her mindset as they're trying to decide whether they're gonna leave their employer, whether they're gonna go somewhere else. And so, and is the FTC gonna get into that too? I mean, I, I have to believe that this will cause a firestorm of, of reaction. Uh, and that what we might get at the end of the day is not a broad rule, but a minor rule that doesn't really mean anything. I think that might be right. I think that might be right. But we're gonna see clarification. We're gonna see guidance on this, I think in the coming days from the FTC. So, yeah. So, all right, well, listen, I think this is fascinating to me. It's something that I'm gonna be watching very closely and I know you, you will too. I think all employers out there should be watching this closely as, as, as well. And I think really, if, you, if there's a takeaway from this, A, read the executive order, although it won't take you that long. Learn about what the FTC can and can't do and pay attention to the rulemaking process. And C, take a look at your restrictive covenants. Assume that even if, even if this rule has a minor impact, assuming it passes or assuming it gets approved, even if it only has a minor impact on non-competes, states are moving against non-competes. And this, like in the your privacy world, it's, there, there is no federal, omnibus federal privacy legislation. It's states that are adopting their own privacy rules. I can see states adopting their own rules now and statutes against a non-compete agreement. So if you're an employer out there and you're thinking about asking an employee to sign a non-compete or imposing a new regime of non-competes, Think about, do you really want a non-compete? Do you really need a non-compete? Can you be protected by a non-solicitation? That's about all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for spending part of your day with us. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact Brent or myself by visiting our biographies on fisherphillips.com. We will be back soon with new episodes and hope you'll join us for those as well. Have a phenomenal day, everyone. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.